This is Tammy, and you're listening to Most Wanted. Hello, sissy. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? It's been it's been a pretty good week, honestly. It has been a good week. It's been a little chilly, but yeah. it's supposed to be like, did you see it's going to be like 70 or something next week? Oh my God. What is yeah. happening this winter? We did finally get some snow for one day. Gross. <laughs> I hate it. I hated it when we got you know, it, and I hate it now. It was kind of nice, not for us, but because they were holding the cross-country ski like world championships in St. Paul, and we hadn't had snow all winter, so they were having to make a bunch of snow for it, and we actually got some real snow like two days before that happened. I'm sorry, they're doing what? <laughs> so, do you know who Jessie Diggins is? No. So she is a professional cross-country or Nordic skier. I think it's Nordic skiing. Maybe Nordic is downhill. Anyway, she she's a cross-country skier. She's won okay. Olympic medals. She's won world championships and stuff. She's from Afton, Minnesota. Oh, and I did so not know that. This is the first time she's been able to race in like a world championship in her home state. Wow. So she was pumped about it. And of course, it's the winter. We got no snow. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> right. Isn't that always the way? Right. So she, I think she got fourth place this weekend in Ooh. her like, in her race. <laughs> but yeah, so that was this weekend. I, my friend and I were talking about going mm-hmm. and then, you know, we hadn't decided. We both had other stuff going on. I knew I was podcasting with you today. Yeah. And then I saw on Instagram that general admission tickets have been sold out forever. And I'm oh, like, well, funny. I guess our decision was made for us. <laughs> <laughs> I see this just shows that I know nothing about anything because I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> and I'm probably just going to keep saying what I say to everyone now. Everyone watches women's sports. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, speaking of watching stuff, have you been watching anything good? Uh, yes. My husband and I are always a little bit behind mm-hmm. on watching anything basically sure but we're catching up on the last season of the crown which was released in the first four episodes released in november and then the last six in december so we're really not that far behind we're a couple months behind so we watched the first four episodes of the crown which is where diana dies it's so sad Uh, i'm not gonna lie i have no idea what the crown is but now i do the the crown it's a six season series following queen elizabeth from the time that she becomes queen mm-hmm. through i think it ends around um when william gets married cuz okay. we haven't we haven't watched those last six episodes yet sure but so yeah the fifth season's mostly about charles and diana and like their impending divorce and whatnot and like that part oh. of the the royalness and mm-hmm. then these first four episodes were they're already divorced trying to co-parent parent uh diana is with Dodie fayed and then they they get killed oh yeah so very sad to watch they did a very good job and then i've also been watching while i've been doing my thesis the third season of american crime story which so the first season is the oj simpson trial the second season is andrew kunanen oh okay and then the third season is about the impeachment of bill clinton Oh. So it's been very well done, but it's like horrifying to watch the things that poor Monica Lewinsky went through. Yeah, I heard that she kind of got dragged. 
not yeah. kind of that she was totally she got dragged totally dragged yeah. yeah and so did linda tripp and linda tripp seems like a bitch but honestly she just was so bound by duty that she felt like she had to you know make recorded co- phone calls with her friend where her friend is admitting to perjury <laughs> what the fuck yeah that's a whole other thing. But anyway, it's it's very well done. The all all three seasons of American Crime Story that I've watched have been very well done. Oh, I will have to give that a shot. I'm watching Superstore again cuz I need I've heard that's so good. I love a lot of the actors in that. It's so cringy, but oh. <laughs> I love it so much. All right. Um I do have to say before we get started that I'd like to um apologize for last week's episode. Not for um, content or anything like that, but uh, my cat. What are you? Oh, the cat. My cat. um, (laughs) She's been already all over the place this morning. I apologize for last week's episode, today's episode, next week's episode, (laughs) and probably all other episodes moving forward because she is just, she's catting away. She is catting away. (laughs) Cute, though. As we always say about our dogs when they get annoying, cute, though. So cute, but Mm -hmm. just shut up. Take a nap. Yeah, take a nap. Well, um, are you ready to play What's My Crime? Yes, I am. Okay. So, uh, we are back this week with our fourth episode in our Black History Month series. Mm -hmm. I kind of previewed it a little bit early on in last week's episode, where we're back in Mississippi during Mm -hmm. the Civil Rights Movement era. Mm -hmm. And this week, we are covering the Mississippi Burning Murders. Oh, boy. Do you know anything about this case, Lauren? Um, no. Okay. I have only done a Google search for photos for the social media. Yep. Um, there's something that I want to add at the end because okay. I'm afraid if I add it at the beginning, you cover it. Why? Oh, okay. What I'm mad about? Okay. So I'm just gonna let you tell. The- <laughs> well, I mean, I'm mad about be- the whole damn yeah, thing. Yeah, you're probably but- gonna be mad about so many things. Yeah, but yeah, I have a specific question and. Okay. That was all I saw, and I was like, what the f-? So I clearly know nothing, and I know I'm sad. This is, it's really horrific. Um, I don't have, like, I have a bunch of content warnings that I'm going to get to in a second, but also mm-hmm. just, like, if you know anything about this case and don't feel like you can handle it, I get it. Yeah. Like, this okay. one's rough. I think it's really important. Right. And I think it's good for as many people to know this stuff as yeah. possible, but it's, it is pretty rough. So, right. Um. With that being said, I'm going to go into sources, I'll go into content warnings, and then we can start this story. Okay. So sources this week include articles from the FBI website, the University of Virginia, PBS American Experience, Famous Trials, CBS News, Mississippi Today, the Zinn Education Project, the U.S. Department of Justice, History.com, Civil Rights Digital Library, the Gospel Coalition, and Teen Vogue. Um, I watched. So, okay, I see your face. Teen Vogue. <laughs> I was like, uh, oh, oh, starting in around 2016, 2017, Teen Vogue actually started doing really, really good journalism and oh. writing it for like a teenage audience so that they could actually learn more about politics and history and like important stuff. I remember getting our younger cousin a subscription for Teen Vogue mm-hmm. when she was still in high school because mm-hmm. I was like. I feel like it's important to know this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate that they're doing act like I mean, you remember Teen Vogue when we were kids. Yes, that's like, why I was, was like nothing. Uh... No, they're doing actual really good journalism now. Wow. Okay. Which I love. I okay. Love. 
So I also watched two YouTube videos, one from the Real Crime channel and one from FBI Files. And I listened to one episode of the Criminology podcast. And okay. then Wikipedia, because we've got a bunch of quote unquote bad guys again, and I just didn't want to give them more <laughs> space than I nope. had to. So yeah, no, I pulled, get it. pulled some stuff from Wikipedia as well. Totally get it. Um, content warnings for this episode include racism, anti-Semitism, white supremacy, murder, police violence, and mentions of lynchings. I'm not ready. Okay. <laughs> Again, laughing because I'm uncomfortable watching Lauren not be ready for this. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. All right. Are you ready, sissy? I am. Are you? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to leave, but... Like, <laughs> if no, you I... stop responding, you've stopped listening to me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to start with the story of Freedom Summer. Okay. So I'm going to start this episode with a little catch up from where we left off last week to where we are this week, because okay. same state, but about a year later. Okay. So Medgar Evers, as we discussed last week, was murdered on June 12th, 1963. Mm-hmm. As the country continued to fight for civil rights for all its residents, Mississippi continued to be a stronghold for resistance to those advances. A year later, in 1964, the Council of Federated Organizations, or COFO, started a summer-long project called Freedom Summer, hmm. which was a huge push to get as many people registered to vote in Mississippi as possible. 1964 was an election year. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Uh, so COFO cons- constituted a whole bunch of collective civil rights organizations that all wanted to expand voter rights. So they were all working together on the Freedom Summer project. What was unique about this project in particular is that it wasn't just Black people in the South working for this. It was collectively anyone who was trying to advance civil rights, basically. Uh, COFO and one of the organizations within COFO called the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, bust college students from northern schools into Mississippi for the summer to work on this effort in particular. Wow. And a lot of those students were white, and this is important to the overall story. Okay. So now I'm going to briefly introduce our main characters for the week. Mm -hmm. So first we have Michael Henry Schwerner, known to his friends and coworkers as Mickey. Mm Mm-hmm. He was a 24-year-old social worker who was working with CORE in Mississippi that summer. He actually had a full-time job with CORE and was the first, if I recall, the first white civil rights worker to work outside of Jackson in Mississippi because Mississippi was such like a stronghold of resistance that they were nervous to send people outside of the main city in the state. So he, Mickey, and his wife, Rita, moved to Mississippi for his job. And they were living in Meridian, which becomes a place in throughout this case. Okay. Um, and he was going to be teaching and helping with voter registration as a permanent employee. I'm going to share the races of these men as well, because it's important to the overall story. Mm-hmm. So Mickey was a white Jewish man from New York City. Okay. James Earl Cheney was a 21-year-old tradesman from Meridian, Mississippi, so he was a local, Mm -hmm. uh, who had been active in the civil rights movement since he was basically legally able to be. He was working as a teenager. Yep. So he participated in the Freedom Rides in 1962 and started volunteering with CORE in 1963. James met Mickey through CORE, and since James was both a Black man and a Mississippi native, 
he became Mickey's local guide, basically. And wow. uh, especially in rural Mississippi, mm-hmm. which is where Mickey was trying to organize voter registration drives. Got it. Our final, I'm calling them main characters. You know, that's not what I mean. Yeah. These three, you can probably guess, end up being our victims. Yeah. Um, our final main character here is Andrew Goodman. He was a 20-year-old college student mm-hmm. from New York City. He came from a family, a well-to-do family of labor activists and grew up in a racially diverse neighborhood in New York. So he was the so he was with the civil rights movement also from a very young age. He was pretty active in New York throughout his entire like teenagehood and early college years. Andrew volunteered with CORE for the summer of 1964 to help with voter registration drives in Mississippi, and he was also white and Jewish. Mm. So, we have these three young men, one black and two Jewish. We have a common goal to register black Mississippi citizens to vote, and we have a flashpoint, Mississippi in in June 1964. Mm. So now I'm going to start our story. Okay. And the story starts with the Mount Zion church burning, which happened just after Labor Day or Memorial Day. I get those two confused some, for some reason. I, I do too. Like I yeah. know when they are, but yeah. the the names themselves, I yep, yep. flip. Yep. So it was. I think it was either late May or early June that this happened in okay. 1964. Okay. So since Mickey Schwerner was a permanent core employee, he was also working on some other projects besides the summer voter registration project. One of his other projects was setting up what CORE was calling Freedom Schools, which were schools to teach Black Southerners who weren't able to make it to traditional school and try to get them to the point where they could possibly even get a GED. Wow. I didn't look into this a lot, but I know in some Southern states, they required a knowledge test in order to be able to register to vote. Okay. Uh, This was specifically set up knowing that it was more difficult for Black citizens to attend and graduate from public schools in the South. Mm. So it was basically to to make it so Black citizens could not register to vote because they couldn't pass the knowledge test. Right. Um, So the Freedom Schools might have been related to that. I don't 100% know that Mississippi was one of these states. I'm pretty sure Alabama was, so it wouldn't surprise me if Mississippi was. Sure. But I'm just not 100% sure. But To have schools being set up, it just makes sense to me. That might be why. Yeah, definitely. Uh, One of the locations that Mickey had identified as a place to set up a freedom school was the Mount Zion Methodist Church, which was a black church outside of the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi. He and James Cheney spoke to their congregation on Memorial Day 1964 about setting up the freedom school and getting that going. He also urged the church members to register to vote because their voices mattered. And he was very clear that, like, everyone's voice matters. So he was very persuasive and empathetic. And, like, he was just a very good person for this job. Yeah. His actual quote that he said to the church was a bit troubling. I'm not going to repeat it here, but he he really meant well. And he was trying, like, he was using language at the time. That's why I'm not going to repeat it. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Um, anyway, a local white supremacy group calling themselves the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, God. I literally just got the chills. Yep. Which apparently was a splinter group of the main KKK that people know. Um, and white supremacists, we'll learn, aren't great at naming things. 
they're all ridiculous names. So they were calling themselves the White Knights anyway. Uh, this group heard about the activities of Mickey and James, and they were not happy, obviously. <clears throat> they don't want educated black Correct. citizens. Yeah. So, so let me tell you a little bit of background about that, because it's important to the story. Sure. And meh, meh. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. Um, so I'm going to preface all of this with a statement about the leadership rank names in these KKK groups. They're laughable. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you some of these names. You're probably going to like snort because they're just ridiculous. Yeah. So please tell me. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to say these with a straight face. I'm going to be completely honest. Okay. Let's go. So first and foremost, they spell things with all Ks, like white supremacy Kardashians. I was going to say like the Kardashians. Yep. Okay. So that's a fun fact when I'm talking about them too. Imagine all of these like hard K words spelled with Ks. Okay. Um, the original Ku Klux Klan, or the first Klan, was formed during Reconstruction, immediately after the Civil War, but did not last very long before they were suppressed and shut down. So mm. that was the early Klan. Okay. With a K. <laughs> right. The second Klan rose up in 1915, based largely on the horrible but extremely popular movie at the time called Birth of a Nation. Okay. Have you ever heard no. of this? Okay. I would recommend not looking it up, honestly. Uh, don't got to tell me twice. Yeah. So, Birth of a Nation was based on the horribly titled book, The Klansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, God. Well, which makes me want to vomit in my mouth as I just made that vomiting noise. Yeah. Um, so, it was the second clan that they introduced like during during this era they introduced the white outfits with the pointy hats and started burning crosses because that was what was depicted in the movie mm. yeah uh this this second clan was a formal fraternal organization that used a real pr firm and had full-time recruiters and the whole thing oh god so at this point they decided that their leader was going to be called the Grand Dragon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, see how, like I said, I can't get through this? That's such a laughable name. Okay. And their Grand Dragon in the mid-1920s was convicted of a horrible rape on a train. So, like, these are the people that are in this group. Oh, fuck. That started a lot of the public opposition to the Klan that their Grand Dragon committed this horrible crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and they finally faded into oblivion around 1940. Okay. However, they were revived in the late 1950s in many states, specifically in opposition to desegregation and to civil rights. Mm-hmm. However, this third clan, unlike the second clan, who had a PR firm, mm-hmm. the third clan largely operated in secret, seeming to know that their activities were no longer favorable to the broader public. Mm-hmm. even if they were bragging amongst themselves about their activities. Oh, God. So this is when the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan splintered off, officially forming in Mississippi and Louisiana in the early 1960s under the leadership of Samuel Bowers. Okay. He was the first, sorry, again, he was the group's first imperial wizard. Uh, yes. Oh, why do they name their... Anyway, um, by the end... It does track, though. It does. Like, this guy probably really thinks that that is an appropriate title for himself. 100%. Like, ugh. 
By the end of 1963, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan had around 6,000 members. And they had claverns. Okay. With a K. Yep. <laughs> in over half the counties in Mississippi. Oh, my God. So the claverns are what they called their little groups. Mm-hmm. So I am going to need you to remember the name Samuel Bowers, because he is going to come up later in this story. Does he die? No. Okay. He comes from a long line of rich Southern racists, and yep. it was under his leadership of the White Knights of the KKK that they decided Mickey Schwerner had to be eliminated. Oh, God. It upset them greatly that a white man was trying to help the black people of Mississippi. So he needed to go. Don't they also hate Jewish people? Yes, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, Schwerner probably is a Jewish name, but I feel like it, it upset them both that he was Jewish and also that he was viewed as white. Right, right. You know, there was like a twofold thing. Yeah. And white people were not supposed to like black people. Right. So, yeah, just totally twisted mindset mm-hmm. all around. Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney weren't living in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and the White Knights wanted to give them a reason to come back to Neshoba County, of which Philadelphia was the county seat. So we're back into our story now. Mm -hmm. So they attacked the Mount Zion Methodist Church one night, beating black, black congregation members and burning the church to the ground. Oh, my God. At the time this occurred, Mickey and James were in Ohio at a core training for the summer volunteers, and they traveled back to Mississippi together, along with volunteer Andrew Goodman, on June 20th, 1964. Okay. Kofo was concerned about the attack on the church, particularly since the site was meant to be a freedom school, and they'd heard about their, their beatings as well, so it was clearly targeted. Right. Um. So on the morning of June 21st, 1964, Mickey, James, and Andrew met at the Kofo headquarters in Meridian, Mississippi, to travel together to the former site of the Mount Zion Methodist Church to investigate the destruction. Mickey told the Kofo headquarters employees that if they weren't back by 4 p.m. that day, to start trying to locate them, because oh, they, they knew the danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think... I think Mickey and Andrew were kind of hoping that since they were white, they'd be a little more protected, but they still obviously understood that it wasn't safe to do this. Right. And then James was the local, so he was actually driving them. Okay. So he drove them to the church, which is probably one of several reasons that all of this took place like it did. Mm-hmm. Like the re- that he was driving. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about this crime. I'm going to tell it in chronological order of what allegedly occurred, although it wasn't found out what actually happened until much later. Mm -hmm. But I think telling it this way is going to help us understand and get through this in a way that makes more sense to us and to listeners and just makes the whole thing make more sense. Okay. Um, It'll also get us through the awful parts in all one section of the podcast. Okay. um, In case anyone does want to skip ahead. But before we do that, Let's go into our ad break. If any of you are full-time remote workers like me, you know the value of comfort. And comfort with a positive message is just next level. That's why I'm proud to be an affiliate for Kind Cotton, a wonderful and cozy clothing brand that spreads kindness and good vibes wherever you go. 
I've got the softest crew neck kindness sweatshirt from their pride line that I've almost worn out. And Lauren has a gorgeous mustard yellow long sleeve tee with be kind embroidered on the front. It's just the cutest thing. And I recently added to my collection during Hispanic Heritage Month. And now I have a kindness tea in the most beautiful purple color in Spanish. It's just delightful. And the best part, for every purchase made, a book is donated to a child. Those regular podcast listeners out there know that I love to read and have sometimes read entire books for a podcast episode. So this is my favorite thing about this brand by far. Check out my Kind Cotton affiliate link in the show notes and on social media. Okay, so let's start talking about this crime. So collect when I when I refer to Mickey, James, and Andrew collectively, I'm pro- I'm gonna call them the three civil rights workers sometimes. That's often how they're referred to in stories, just to kind of try to keep all these people straight. So the three civil rights workers left Mount Zion Methodist Church at around three o'clock on June twenty first, nineteen sixty four. They decided PM, sorry. Three o'clock PM. Okay. Good so good distinction. Three okay. o'clock PM. Okay. That's actually something I should point out. One of the rules that they had and they taught their volunteers and all their employees knew at CORE and COFO was to never travel in the dark because it wasn't safe. So, and like, because the Klan was secretive, they often operate under cover of darkness. So 3 p.m., part of the 4 p.m. cutoff to get back was to make sure that they were only traveling during the day. Got it. Okay. So they left the church at about 3 p.m. They decided to take the paved highways back to Meridian rather than the unpaved country road, even though the, pay, uh, the unpaved road was more direct, but the highways were quicker. Right. So the highways first took them to Philadelphia, then south to Meridian. So instead of being like a direct, it was like a, you know, yep. through a city and then you take a turn. Okay. Once they had passed through the Philadelphia city limits, they were almost immediately pulled over for speeding. In quotes, and Mr. Cheney is still driving. Yes. Okay. What's his first name? James. James. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, so they were pulled over by Neshoba County Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price. Okay. This is another name to remember in the story. Price called two highway patrolmen to assist in their arrest for speeding. James Cheney, the one black man in the group. Was, arrest- was arrested for speeding, and Mickey and Andrew were held in a holding cell for investigation, also in quotes. At this point, they obviously missed their 4 p.m. deadline to return to Meridian. And at 4.45, the Meridian office of the COFO and CORE notified their, Jackson, their main Jackson office that the three workers had not returned from Neshoba County. And then Jackson started calling all of the local sheriff's departments and jails and stuff, trying to figure out where they were, mm-hmm. assuming something had happened. There, That's so shitty that you even have to think. Uh, yep. Yeah, no, it's like, okay, sorry, continue. Yep. And this comes out later. It's not super important. It's just kind of like a, another instance of how this was all coordinated. Um, there is evidence that Kofo called the the jail in Philadelphia at like five or five thirty, and we're told that there was no one there. But the Philadelphia jail, when asked, said, "Oh, no one called us." Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah, on and on and on. Shocking. Yes. So Mickey and Andrew 
the two white men, mm-hmm. were released from the county jail at around 10 p.m. No charges filed. Okay. And then James had had charges filed for speeding. But Mickey paid James's bail so they could all leave together. Yay. It was now after dark. And they had not been allowed to make a phone call. So they couldn't notify anyone that they had been released. Oh, fuck. They were followed. So they got in their car. They left immediately. They were followed by the two Mississippi Highway Patrolmen, along with Deputy Price. Why? Make sure you get out of my county or we're... So, yeah, that was what they were told. Is like, you can go get the fuck out of our, out of our county. Or let's keep eyes on them so that something terrible can well, happen to them. I don't know exactly yeah. why they were followed, but they, they, they were followed. Yes, of course they were. Um, what the three civil rights workers probably didn't realize or know was that while they had been in, their, in the county jail, Cecil Price had contacted a man named Edgar Ray Killen, known as the Preacher. Oh, God. Oh, that literally just gave me goosebumps. Yep. Who was also obviously a member of the White Knights. and. Yep. It was Killen who laid out the plan that would be followed. Deputy Price, then on Killen's orders, rounded up some other members of the White Knights, so they were all waiting for the three men to leave the jail in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. The three civil rights workers headed south on Highway 19 toward Meridian. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now is the time for our listeners. If you don't want to hear about these horribly racist murders, you should probably skip ahead a few minutes. A few minutes? Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Deputy Price pulled the men over again and told them that he was just going to escort them along. He led them instead to a secluded intersection on what is called Rock Cut Road. Okay. James Cheney was removed from the car, beaten with a chain and castrated before being shot. Mickey and Andrew were forced to watch. Mickey ran from where they were holding him and watching to catch James before he fell to the ground after being shot. And there's actually a Rockwell painting of this where it shows one white man on the ground and another white man holding a black man that's bleeding. So Mickey ran out to catch James before he fell. Mickey was shot next, then Andrew. It is known now who actually shot them. It wasn't at the time. A man named James Jordan was the man who shot Cheney in the abdomen after he had been tortured. And then Cheney probably died from blood loss. Mm-hmm. Alton Roberts, a dishonorably discharged former Marine, shot both Mickey and Andrew at point blank range. Allegedly, after James had been shot and Mickey caught him, Mickey was asked if he was an N-word lover before they shot him. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. The three men were then loaded back into their own station wagon and driven to a farm owned by another member of the White Knights named Olin Burridge. Burridge, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, The farm was called Old Jolly Farm. Gross. Uh Uh-huh. On the farm, there was an earthen dam that was under construction to make a small pond. A man named Herman Tucker, who was not a member of the White Knights, but worked in construction for Olin Burridge, 
was tasked with burying the bodies. I'm saying this specifically because they didn't want their own hands to be dirty, so this guy made his employee do it. That's sick. Yep. So the three civil rights workers were buried in the earthen dam by a bulldozer operated by Tucker. During autopsy much later, Andrew Goodman was found to have red clay in his lungs and clasped in his fist. He was buried alive next to the dead bodies of Mickey and James. Holy shit. Herman Tucker, the same employee, was also tasked with disposing of the core station wagon and was given specific instructions to drive it to Alabama and leave it there. Uh, The reasons for this will come out later in the story. For unknown reasons, in quotes, although I have some guesses, Tucker did not do that. He said, fuck this. Yep. And he left the car in Neshoba County, setting it on fire in the woods and abandoning it. Oh. I'm guessing he didn't really want to be involved in any of this <laughs> and was basically being forced to. So yeah. he was kind of like, why the fuck would I drive to Alabama? This is bullshit. And then he immediately went and found non-corrupt cops and told them what happened. And okay, you keep going then. Yeah. Nope, that did not happen. Um. So, all right, at this point, we hearing the story, we know what happened to Mickey, James, and Andrew. Mm -hmm. But aside from the large group of men, more names are coming later, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, No one else at this point knows what happened to them. They're just poof. Yeah, they're just missing. Yep, they're just missing. Um, So now we're going to go into the search for the missing civil rights workers. (sighs) So once Mickey, James, and Andrew missed their 4 p.m. deadline, their core co-workers were obviously really worried. Yeah. The part of Mississippi that they had traveled to was notorious. We'll say that. Yeah. Like we kind of talked about, don't travel at night. All, they had all these rules already in place. So not only did they report them missing to their headquarters office in Jackson, they also reported them missing to the FBI, oh. which set a whole other thing in motion. So initially... This will surprise you, I'm sure. Our dear old friend, J. Edgar Hoover, was oh. reluctant to send additional agents to Mississippi. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> However, President Lyndon Johnson threatened to send the CIA instead. And Hoover was like, no, I'm no, the CIA is not better than us. We'll do it. You know, just shout asshole. out Lindy B. Yeah, right. Uh, so I wrote that Hoover was like, oh, fine. Oh, fine. <laughs> What a! I know, I know. So once Hoover activated uh, local agents, local at this point being in New Orleans, because there wasn't an office in Mississippi yet at this point. Oh. So that's actually a correction from our last episode. I said there was an office already in Jackson. It wasn't established until 1964. Okay. So last episode, they also came from New Orleans. This is people coming from New Orleans. Um. So once Hoover activated local agents, U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy escalated the search for the three missing men by sending 150 agents from the New Orleans office to Mississippi. And I'm guessing they probably didn't. It was probably from other offices, too. I I would guess that there weren't that many to spare from New Orleans, but sent 150 agents to Mississippi to aid in the search. Wow. All right. So this was all in the first day or two after they went missing. That's how notorious this part of Mississippi was. Holy shit. It's like everyone knew, but no one felt like they could do anything until something terrible had already happened. Which, 
is so shitty, but it's kind of how things work when they're hoping to change things. They need yep. an example. Yep. Which which is the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. Um, I do want to note here that this heightened response was likely because at 20 or so years out from World War II, feelings had finally started to change in the minds of the general public. To Southern racists, this was nothing, a missing Black man and two missing Jews. Right. But to general Northern and anti-segregationist public and mindset, this was a missing Black man and two missing white men who were all working towards civil rights. Right. Right. So I think that matters when you think about this story and the traction it received, because by the time the FBI was sending hundreds of agents to Mississippi, this story was already on national news. Wow. Yep. Yep. And the sheriff's office was constantly being called. And they're just like, they had all these excuses. We'll get into that later. But they're just like, this isn't a crime. Nothing happened here. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. So at this point, it wasn't just media that was calling the local police and local sheriff's offices. It was also the FBI calling them now, too. Yes. And they started, they were obviously asking them, like, what happened? We need your help. And the local sheriff's department basically said, this isn't a crime. These men, these men ran away on their own accord. They're adults. Nothing happened here. I. Yep. And this was a conspiracy theory that continued basically until they had solid evidence to prove it wrong. The governor was repeating this conspiracy theory that they just ran away. <laughs> so a day after the men had gone missing, their car was found in the woods, mm-hmm. not far from where they had been buried, although that wasn't known. Yes, yeah, right. It had been covered in gasoline and burned and was found by two local Native Americans Oh, in, in the woods. Yeah. So the burned out car is why the case ended up being lumped in as Mississippi burning. Mississippi burning actually started as the church burning investigation right. case. Right. But because they had gone to the church and then their car was burned, Mississippi burning. Or as the FBI abbreviated it, abbreviated it my burn. Which, okay, MI is the state initials for Michigan. Yeah. Oh. So shouldn't oh. it be Miss MS like Miss Burn? But I, I don't name things. <laughs> so even burned, it was clear that there were no bodies inside the car. So the car was burned, but there yeah. were no remains in it. Right. So the FBI went to the scene of the burned car. They immediately saw that this was big. And it was bad. Yeah. And it shifted from looking for missing people to looking for remains. At the point that they realized how bad this was, the federal Mm. government then was able to arrange for hundreds of sailors from the... (gasps) No, I I didn't even think about it. Of course, they're going to go looking... Okay, go, 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 go. Okay, so they got hundreds of sailors from the nearby naval base in Meridian to help them search the swamps for bodies. Oh, because oh. at this point they suspected it was the worst possible outcome. So this part's also really bad as a warning. While searching the swamps, the bodies of eight other deceased black people were found. Yeah. Two of them were college students, Henry oh, yeah. Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore. Uh, they were two college students who disappeared in May 1964 while hitchhiking through Mississippi. 
Oh my God. Another was 14 year old Herbert Orsby. And his, the story of his death and the cause of death are still unknown. Oh, baby angel. Yeah. So the other five bodies have never been identified, but they all appear to be the victims of lynchings. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Fuck. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. So by the end of June, the entire country was tuned into the disappearances of Mickey, James, and Andrew. Mm -hmm. And to say that Mississippi state officials resented the extra attention on them was an understatement. Well, maybe you should do something. Yeah. So around this time... This is still 64, correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. Around this time, the sheriff of Neshoba County went on record saying... They're just hiding and trying to cause a lot of bad publicity for this part of the state. Oh, question, question. Yes. Um, is the one Mickey. that moved, Mickey, who moved there with his wife. Yeah. So he's just hiding from her? That's what they think. And yep. James is just hiding from his family? Yep. And I'm and, assuming... And Andrew's just hiding out because he doesn't want to go back to college? All of this he, makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. F- fuck school, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fuck the whole reason I came here. He was there less than one day. This is what I will never understand. Like, I understand that people do disappear. You know, they they do. Sometimes people don't want to be found. I get that. Yep. But why? They're literally trying to do something. You think that they're just like, you know what? I was going to do this really good cause. Fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. Decided not to. Last minute. Yeah. Just (laughs) You know what I want to do instead? I want to go hang out with. Two people that, I mean, I kind of know. But I know, like, yeah. I've, I met yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Just fuck it. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. This makes no sense. But it, it like it gets worse. Like I, I, like I said, the governor was involved in this too. Is it punishable that the sheriff and the governor, like, is it a crime that they do nothing because it should be? So the sheriff, yes. Okay. We'll get to the sheriff. Okay. The governor, no. The governor doesn't. What is the governor's name? I am about to name him. He's in the, okay. He's in the next sentence. Okay, sorry. Go. So the governor of Mississippi at the time, mm-hmm. Paul B. Johnson Jr. Yeah, also dismissed the national concern, stating he thought the three men could be in Cuba. Why? I don't know. Okay, I don't know. At this point, people were still believing that, like the white people of Mississippi didn't want to believe that something bad had happened to them. And they're like, sure, yeah, they ran away. That makes so much sense. Like we were just talking about, that makes no sense. That makes zero sense. Yeah. So while Paul Johnson was considered a liberal, in quotes, Mississippi politician for the time, obviously, quotes, because he was still a supporter of segregation, so not that liberal. Was he Um, also in the Klan? As far as I know, no, but... He didn't want to be the Red Dragon or whatever I, it's called? <laughs> I think it was the Grand Dragon. Whatever. Thorin, come on. I think the Red Dragon is Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> That's fine. So. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so his campaign slogan when he was reelected in 1963 was, Stand Tall with Paul. Because he claimed he was... <laughs> Uh, trying to stand against the people trying to change Mississippi's way of life. Mm. So that's why I said liberal is in quotes, because what? Yeah, no. No, sir. Yeah. So anyway, this dum-dum was publicly telling people that Mickey, James, and Andrew ran off to Cuba for unknown reasons because of his popularity in the state. And because of that, locals tended to believe that there was no reason to be concerned. 
about any of this. <sighs> it was so easy to get to Cuba in the 60s, too. Like, are you kidding me? Is that a joke? It's a joke. Okay. Like, you, I was, was like, it, it was? was? <laughs> no, it was literally right after, like, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. So the Why FBI. Cuba? That, I, whatever. Okay. Doesn't matter. Know. Yeah, I don't know. The FBI finally announced an award of $25,000 for information leading to the discovery of the bodies of the three men. Okay. Which is over $245,000 today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know what? All right. Let's. That's I've, decent money. Yeah. Uh, are we going to see justice, like, really at yes, all? Yes and no. Okay. Yep. Uh, so this award finally led to a breakthrough in the case. Mm-hmm. And an FBI informant, known at the time only as Mr. X, came forward with information about the earthen dam on Old Jolly Farm. And the bodies were finally found on August 4th, 1964, oh God. 44 days after the three men had disappeared. So Mr. X has been named, I don't think I wrote his name in this because I don't care, but he was also a member of the Klan and he was a state highway patrolman. Wait, no, you don't get the reward. Yep, you yep. don't get to be a Klan's member and get money. I think he got paid $30,000 by the FBI for this information. I, have, I, I can't. Please move on. Yep. I can't. I'm so mad right now. Yep. So the nationwide outrage about these disappearances finally allowed the first civil rights legislation to pass through Congress and be signed into law. So that's part of why this case is so important in the grand scheme of things. Yep. Um, And I'm putting it in this part of the story because this happened before they were found. Oh, okay. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed by President Lyndon Johnson on July 2nd, 1964, about a month before the bodies were found. Yep. Um, I will tell you more about that at the end, like when we talk about the legacy of Mickey, James, and Andrew. So this is where this story gets a little bit complex. And I'm going to do my <laughs> your face. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to like ask as many questions as you need to, because I'm going to try I'm going to try to explain this as best as possible. Okay. Some of these federal laws are just complicated. That's, okay. Well, that's what we're going into. Okay. So this section is called the federal case against 18 KKK members. Ooh. So as you can probably guess, the state of Mississippi didn't want anything to do with the prosecution of this case. <sighs> and they basically refused after the FBI handed over all the evidence. They refused to press charges against anyone. <sighs> so once again, the federal government stepped in, charging 18 people under two federal statutes. Oh. Okay. The first was conspiracy to commit an offense or to defraud the United States. Yes. Cons- conspiracy. Yep. UFAP. <laughs> Not this time. Okay. <laughs> and the second was deprivation of rights under color of law. Okay. That's the one I'll be explaining in a second. Thank you. I was, okay. Yep. So the conspiracy charge is pretty self-explanatory. A group of people conspire to do a crime together. Yep. That's basically the underlying of that. But I am going to take a little bit of time to explain the deprivation of rights under color of law statute, because I think it's really important to know all this info, to Mm -hmm. understand not only this case, but also all of the cases where you hear on the news that federal civil rights offenses were charged against police officers for violence against unarmed Mm -hmm. people. All of this 
falls under deprivation of rights under color of law. Oh, okay. So it applies to this case, but it also applies to any things you hear in the news too recently. Like every like every shooting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh so we're going to go on a little bit of a journey, but okay. I think it's an important one. Okay. So for the deprivation of rights statute, there are three prongs that need to be met. The first is the person must be acting under color of law. I will explain that, don't worry. Mm-hmm. The second is the act must be willful. Mm-hmm. And the third is that they must have deprived a person of a right guaranteed by the feds or by the state. Yes. Okay. So I'm explaining it this way because the law was written a really long time ago. Okay. And it's just confusing to read the statute itself. So I'm not going to read you the statute. That makes it way more confusing. Okay. Than it actually is. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. So we're going to break this down. First, the person must be acting under color of law. This is an old-timey, confusing way to say that they're an agent of the government in some way. Okay. So police officers, correction officers, doctors, athletic trainers, teachers, anyone who's working for a state, local, or federal government is acting under color of law. Okay. So they also have to be on duty. That's also part of this. Okay. Okay. And it has to be related to their job. Okay. So example. Larry Nasser yes. was employed by Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics, two agents of the government. Okay. Separately, state and yep. federal. And he was employed by them while he was performing like doctor medical exams, yeah. but also assaulting people. Right. So he was not charged under the statute because they got it was easier to prove and they got higher penalties for the child sex abuse stuff. But he could have been charged under this statute as well. Okay. And so, we will be covering him. So you guys yeah. have that to look forward to. Ugh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. It's I, another one that's important because that's actually changed a lot of how the federal government looks at making sure that you take action on cases. So yep. that will actually be a very important case for us to cover. Um, so this is also important to this part of the statute. If a group of people is being led by an agent of the government, that agency gets passed to the group. Okay. So they're all acting under color of law. Oh, okay. This applies to this case because who led the group of white knights after Mickey, James, and Andrew once they were released from the Neshoba County Jail? The police officers. Yes. Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price, who because he was on duty and in uniform in his cruiser, Okay. He was acting under color of law and he chased them down with yeah. other people in tow. Yeah. So, check first prong. Yep. Second, the act must be willful. This is usually the hardest of the prongs to prove in court because you have to be able to definitively say that the actor knew what they were doing was wrong and they did it anyway. So, when you talk about police shootings, this one's usually the most difficult one to prove because you have to be able to say that this person knew that they didn't have to shoot the guy girl or whoever you and i can see it very simply it's sometimes hard to prove in court in this case it's pretty cut and dry yes i was okay yes <laughs> yep since the three civil rights workers were brought to a secluded spot by a deputy sheriff and his friends they were beaten tortured and shot by a racist mob that included members of law enforcement willful prong to check yep so third the third prong of this, the victims of a crime of this kind must be deprived of a right 
given by the federal or state government. Okay. So generally, when we're looking at this prong of the statute, we're looking at U.S. constitutional rights. This is adjacent to my obsession with the Supreme Court, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. I wish you guys could see Lauren's face. (laughs) We're going to need you to move on, Sissy. I will give you all the time you want to talk to me about the Supreme Court off air. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. I'm talking about three constitutional amendments real quick in relation to this. Okay. So the three amendments that are usually looked at for this prong are the fourth, the eighth, and the 14th. The fourth amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Thank you. The Eighth Amendment protects against cruel and unusual punishments. Yes. And the Fourteenth Amendment protects against the deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So honestly, the way I'm not a lawyer, but the way I'm looking at this, all three of these could apply here. Yes, I agree. An arrest without cause is considered an unreasonable seizure. Yes. Being beaten with a chain or forced to watch such torture could be considered cruel and unusual punishment. Yes. And being killed by a racist mob that includes law enforcement officers is depriving them of their lives without due process of law. Correct. So check, check, and check. Right. And again, of note, I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> I, did, I, I did used to work civil rights cases for the federal government. So if I was looking at investigating this case, I would be like, check, check, check. Right. <laughs> like, we've, we've got it. Right. So now we've got the basis of deprivation of rights under color of law. We've got conspiracy. And we've got a resistant state government. So next we have a federal trial. Okay. So the other thing to note at this point was that these white knight assholes were so confident in their ability to get away with murder that two of them confessed to authorities about the whole dang thing. Wow. And the state of Mississippi still refused to charge them. (sighs) Yep. So the federal indictments were largely based on this confession, along with the burned car and the autopsy evidence. Mm -hmm. So here's the sequence of events. Okay. 19 men, including Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, and Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price were indicted on two federal charges, conspiracy and deprivation of rights under color of law, in early December 1964. Okay. Six days later, a U.S. commissioner dismissed the charges, stating that confessions, that the confessions they were based on were hearsay. Boo. Are you kidding me? It's not done. (laughs) But yes, that happened six days later. (laughs) Yep. In January 1965, the federal government again secured indictments against the 19 men. Uh-huh. On February 24th, 1965, federal judge William Harold Cox of the Southern District of Mississippi dismissed the charges against everyone other than Sheriff Rainey and Deputy Sheriff Price, stating that the others weren't agents of the government and weren't acting under color of law. Now, we know, we just talked about this, mm-hmm. we know that agents of the government can give their power to others. Yep. That's a basis of this law. It's been, there's precedent for it at this point. Um, Also of note, it was a well-known fact that Judge Cox was against integration and not a big fan of the whole civil rights movement. So we've got another like resistant person in power here. So it's a great thing that he's making decisions. However, The decision by Judge Cox was appealed by the U.S. government all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which overruled Judge Cox and reinstated the indictments in March 1966. Good, 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 good. Defense attorneys then argued that the indictments were flawed because the grand jury that returned them didn't have enough minorities. 
which is opposite to what they're normally doing in these cases. Yeah. So anyway, totally confused about that. But the feds didn't want to risk it. So they called a new grand jury and they won re-indictments again on the same charges against the same men. Yes. Okay. This this was February 28th, 1967. So it's finally trial time. Yay. Okay. Let's go. Yep. So the case was collectively called United States versus Cecil Price et al. Mm. And it began on October 7th, 1967. Okay. I would guess that the Southern District of Mississippi was pretty small because they were in front of the same judge that dismissed many of the indictments earlier. You can't do that. I know. That so, shit pisses me off. Yep. To remind everyone, Judge William Harold Cox. Remember his name because he's an asshole. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the final jury consisted of seven white men and five white women. Mm. All 17 potential black jurors were dismissed by the defense using their peremptory challenges. Mm-mm. And the one white juror that the prosecutor tried to challenge because he'd been in the KKK and said so during jury selection, he was allowed in by Judge Cox. So, again, fucking asshole. Yeah. Um, I also want to note quickly, you're probably getting really tired of my random legal asides, but what happened with the peremptory challenges in this case is no longer allowed. Okay. So, they call it a Batson violation. It's named after Batson versus Kentucky, which was decided by the Supreme Court in 1986, so long after this happened. Okay. But what that decision was, was the Supreme Court decided in this case that using peremptory strikes against potential jurors based on their race violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and was therefore unconstitutional. Okay. Okay. So this was a horrendous and literally unconstitutional decision that was made, but at the time it hadn't been decided yet. So Okay. Onward. Uh, This trial sounds like it sucked all around. Um, There is a photo, we should try to find it after we're done, of Lawrence Rainey and Cecil Price literally eating snacks during their arraignments. It's just, they were so cocky. It must have just been horrible all around. Do you think him and them and Byron were friends? Honestly, probably. Yeah. Because didn't didn't he go up and try to talk to the... The jury, he had yeah. like his feet up on a chair during Yeah, what testimony. a prick. Okay. Yeah. So, I hate people. I know. I know. A star prosecution witness was hospitalized during the trial because of the stress of constant death threats. Oh, and my God. Ju- and then the jury was deadlocked for a long time. Oh, my God. In the end, it was a pretty split decision. The judge basically said, I'm not going to do a hung jury because I don't want to do this again. So you go back into that fucking room and you make a decision. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's, to me, that's not a great way to go about things after a certain point. Right. Because like, clearly they're deadlocked. Eventually someone's gonna be like, I want to get out of here. Fine. Right. Yes. And it might yeah. not be the person you want to flip. Correct. Right. 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 <laughs> so that just annoys me. But in the end, it was a pretty split decision. Seven of the 19 defendants were convicted. Okay. Two resulted in a hung jury. Mm-hmm. So he just didn't want the whole thing hung, I guess. And 10 were acquitted. <laughs> Those convicted were Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price. Yes. White Knight Imperial Wizard Samuel Bowers. Alton Wayne Roberts, one of the shooters. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Snowden. Billy Wayne Posey. Okay. Horace Barnett. 
and Jimmy Arledge. I want to point out that one of the shooters, James Jordan, was not convicted. I was going to say that's not enough names that I know. Yep. And the guy whose land they were on, not convicted. What the? F- yep. And those weren't the two hung juries? Nope. Okay. Nope. They were both acquitted somehow. What I think I actually think, sorry, looking back on this, James Jordan was one of the confessions. I bet he got a immunity. deal of some yeah, sort. I, yeah. I bet he got some kind of immunity because there were originally 21 people that were charged and it mm-hmm. dropped to 19. So I bet the two that confessed. Yeah. Okay. Got, that makes sense. Got deals. That's, I don't know that, but that would be math wise. <laughs> I was going to say now that we're talking it out. Yeah. That would make sense. Yep, yeah. Absolutely. So also the guy who actually did the burying and burned the car not part of this which i actually think is he probably should have gotten something but he was the employee right he was the employee that was ordered to do it by his boss so like still though i know it's i know i don't love it i don't love any of this no um of the two with hung juries the only one that really matters is edgar ray killen the preacher yeah because he was like the one that planned it. I wrote yeah. he was a part-time preacher and a full-time racist. <laughs> Sorry. But it's I was facts. in the mood when I wrote this. I know. It's, I mean, you are, you are speaking facts, so I, I get it. So we're going to come back to Edgar. Um, I don't know if I write this later. It's not written right here. But his, his jury, like his hung jury was 11 to 1. One lady refused to convict a preacher. Don't. Mm -hmm. He's a bad person. Yep. Who fucking cares what he does? Right. But 1967. And when I say who cares what he does, who cares about his profession is what I mean. Yeah. But like, and especially considering now how much trouble members of churches have gotten into for crimes, multiple types of crimes, child sex abuse, embezzlement white collar stuff like this is pretty outrageous to look at in that's a insane light yeah 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 that's but this 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 white lady just wouldn't convict a preacher so hmm. judge cox's sentences for the seven convicts which is now what i'm calling them the seven yeah, convicts fine. yep uh ranged from three to ten years huh when asked why they were so light, I know for a fact that a conviction of 18 U.S.C. 242 or deprivation of rights has a sentence range up through the death penalty. I mean, yeah. Yep. So when asked why the sentence was so light, uh, Judge Cox, the racist judge, mm-hmm. said this, and I quote, sort of, because I block out a word I'm not going to say. Yep. Uh, they killed one N-word, one Jew, and one white man. I gave them all I thought they deserved. Yeah. I was speechless when I read it. Lauren is sitting here with her mouth hanging open. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yep. So when I said remember his name, he's a fucking asshole. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. What the fuck? And he was he was even wrong. There were two Jews. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not what you it's said It's not even right, but like, it's actually worse the way he said it. Correct. Because he's making it sound like, well, there was one white guy, but who cares? I know. I know. So, obviously, all seven of these convicts appealed. 
but they eventually exhausted all of their appeals and began serving their sentences in March 1970. Okay. None of them ever served more than six years in prison. Are you fucking kidding me? Nope. I wish I was. I wish I was. This is not the justice I was hoping for, just so you're aware. There's a little bit more justice coming. Okay. Tiniest bit. Okay. But yeah, no, you're going to be really mad at the end of this. I'm really mad right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, you're going to stay mad. (laughs) Fuck. So, our next little section of the story is called The State Case Against Edgar Ray Killen. Okay. I said I'd come back to him. Yep. He was strongly implicated in the murders by witnesses, i.e. he planned them. Right. Uh, Even though he wasn't physically present, but he was like giving orders. Death penalty. (laughs) No. Well, kind of, because he was real old, but no. Um, So, yeah, he planned it. He hyped them up with his racist sermons, all that crap. So, he had a hung jury, 11 to 1. White lady wouldn't convict him. In the 1990s. Jerry Mitchell, an investigative reporter for the Jackson Clarion Ledger, which we mentioned mm-hmm. last episode as well. Mm-hmm. He's actually in last episode, too. I don't remember if I named him. You did not. Um, he, yeah. No, you did not. But yes. Yeah, but he, he was a big part of resurrecting Medgar Evers' murder yes. case, too. Yep. yep. So he wrote extensively about this case in the 1990s. Okay. Uh, He helped develop new evidence, and he worked with some high school students and their teacher, who were making a documentary about the case, to secure some additional interviews Oh, for their documentary. They actually interviewed old Edgar. And that interview helped convince the state of Mississippi to open the case back up. (laughs) So because he couldn't keep his fucking mouth shut about being a racist piece of shit. Yep. He's gone back to trial. Yep. Yep. Good. Good. Yep. So part of what Mitchell did during this time was determine the identity of Mr. X for the first time. Mm -hmm. So that guy was finally like dirty laundry aired. Yep. Like I said, I didn't write his name down. He was a state trooper. Um, Jerry Mitchell's investigative journalism was also instrumental in getting the state of Mississippi to retry Byron Dale Beckwith, like Mm -hmm. I said, in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was doing all the good work in Jackson in the 1990s. All right. As the 40th anniversary of the murders approached in 2004, pressure continued to mount on the state of Mississippi to do something. Wait, 2004? Yes. Okay. And they finally did. On January 6, 2005, a Neshoba County grand jury indicted Edgar Ray Killen on three counts of murder. Yes. When this case was prosecuted by the Mississippi Attorney General, it was the first time that anyone had been tried in the state of Mississippi for these murders. Okay. Mickey Schwerner's widow testified during the trial on June 21st, 2005, the 41st anniversary of the murders. A jury convicted Killen of three counts of manslaughter. Okay. They, re- they refused to convict him of murder, but it's something. It's something. Okay. He was sentenced to three terms of 20 years to be served consecutively. Okay. Although it was all for show because Killen was 80 at this point. Whatever. Yeah. Rot, bitch. Yeah. 
In Killen's appeal to the Mississippi Supreme Court, he literally stated that he would have never been convicted by a jury of his peers in 1964, so he shouldn't have been convicted now. Sir, that's a terrible take. Yes. Yes. So I wrote, you fucked around and found out. Yeah, 100%. Honestly, too late to really mean much to me, but I get why, like, at least symbolically. Yeah. It meant something. Um, His appeal was obviously rejected by the Mississippi Supreme Court in 2007, Mm -hmm. and Killen actually lived a while in prison. Good, good, good. He died in prison in 2018 at the age of 92. Uh Haha. So he spent the last 12 years of his life in prison. But like, again, he had 41 years free. I can't stand this shit. I know. So on June 20th, 2016, both the state of Mississippi and the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division announced jointly that they were closing the Myburn investigation for good. They agreed that 50 years later, the evidence and memories of those involved had degraded and there wasn't anyone left to prosecute, even if they wanted to. While I appreciate the late effort, that means that at least 11 people got away with murder for their entire lives. Yeah. Yeah. And that really, really sucks. So now I want to talk about the lasting legacy of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Please. One of the biggest lasting impacts of the horrible murders of Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman was the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, like I said, was signed by President Lyndon Johnson while the men were still missing. Do I don't know history very well. Does Lindy B just like stay good? I think so. Pretty sure. Okay. So he he was from Texas. Wow. He was a Southern Democrat. Wow. But he actually did a lot of the work that Kennedy wasn't able to do in his lifetime that he wanted to for civil rights. So in terms of civil rights work, yeah, he he did a lot of good. So this. Civil Rights Act of 1964, created the first federal hate crimes law in the United States and started turning the tide in the South regarding the murders and lynchings of Black men and women who were doing civil rights work. This first hate crimes law specifically applied to access to federally protected activities such as voting, Mm. interstate travel, and education. Wow. So really, really good stuff happening here sucks how it had to happen but but i mean as we said earlier yeah it's kind of like you need that example which no you fucking don't i know but a lot of people seem to need it or think they need it yeah 100 percent um had this law existed when the three men were murdered as they were trying to establish both a school and register people to vote Mm -hmm. i wonder if there could have been a case for it to be used in Mm -hmm. the prosecution right but since Federal laws aren't retroactive. We'll never know if that was an option. Right. They're not. No. They Mm -hmm. should be. Okay. They should be. Yeah. Uh, In addition to the creation of hate crime laws in the U.S. at the federal level, Mickey, James, and Andrew have been honored nationwide, and they're remembered as martyrs of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. The movie Mississippi Burning was released in 1988. It's a fictionalized version of events with names changed and everything, but its roots are in this murder, and they follow it relatively closely. Okay. A number of other fictionalized versions of these events have been created into TV series and movies. This case truly 
change the course of civil rights history. And while there's no excuse for it happening at all, and a lot of justice wasn't really no gotten, it's yeah, our country might have been very different if it hadn't happened. Right. And something that I want to kind of end us with was something that Rita Schwerner, Michael Schwerner's widow, mm-hmm. said. I think the I think they were still missing. I don't think they the bodies had even been found yet. But she basically said like. It sucks that my husband had to go missing in order for this to be a nationwide thing. Right. Like, because he was white and people could relate to him more than they could relate to black people in the South, suddenly you care. And right. that's not how it should be. No, not at all. Like, I seriously want to cry right now. Yeah. Like, she she was on that boat from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Like she, 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 she did work for CORE as well. So, she was... Yeah. They were in it together, and she. Oh my gosh! He was twenty four. I, I yeah twenty. And he was the oldest. Yeah, like yeah. that's how old they were, and yeah. they. Oh my god! Yeah. So, that's the end of my story. What are your final thoughts on this one, Lauren? I hate it. I'm horribly sad, but yeah, I mean, as you just said, our nation would be could potentially have been so different yeah but it sucks that all this stuff had to happen yeah this really is because having done a bunch of research into like civil rights era stuff Mm -hmm. this is the only really big case where two of the victims of a lynching were white so it really just because of the state of the nation in 1964 Mm -hmm. There's really, I don't think, any other case that could have propelled the legislation. Right. Propelled right. Hoover to do anything. Right. Like, propelled. So, the other thing that happened was, while I think it was while they were missing, but it might have been right after they were found, mm-hmm. he actually opened the Jackson office of the FBI. Wow. Like, in response to this happening. Like, wow. We need more people in Mississippi. This is clearly a problem. No. I mean, it's a little too, I little just, too late. I know. Bit, it's but, like, yeah. really? Yeah. You, you don't, don't say. say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, oh, my gosh. I, this might be a good time for me to um, say my final thing, and I will Please. put it in my final thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like I said, I was looking, I only know anything just from pictures, and I'm happy yep. that I haven't sent any to you because you mentioned more people than the pictures I found. Mm-hmm. But in the pictures I found, they have um, multiple photos of Mickey Sh- Schwerner mm-hmm. and Andrew Goodman. Mm-hmm. And there's only one picture of James Cheney that you can find, or that that's, I could find. That's the only photo of James Cheney I've ever seen. That's horribly sad. Yeah. Yep. Because I have multiple photos of the other men doing, I'm assuming doing work for... Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's one picture of him, and that made me fucking pissed. Yeah, no, I mean, and not, I've not as mad as I am now, right? <laughs> no, and you're totally right. It's like, and it's kind of nature of the times. He was 21. He was a local, so he wasn't. At, I think a lot of the photos of Mickey were like from college or from trainings and stuff. And the that's, ones from Andrew, I think, were from trainings. Yeah. So I, I think that he didn't really attend trainings in the same way because he was so entrenched in it from where he grew up and where he lived right it's no excuse to still like really you don't have any photos of your your black volunteers really that's that yeah it's like yeah no one no one had another photo of him but i mean one yeah Yeah. i mean 
it's a it's a stupid thing to get mad at in the grand scheme of things, but it was just like no, it, I I noticed <laughs> it too when I was doing research. I I I read. I mean, you heard my list of sources at the beginning. Yeah, I read so much stuff and watched so many things. I've never seen another picture of James Cheney except for there's one photo of the bodies when they were found in the pit. Yeah, I know. I saw that. Yeah. Did well, I answer all of your other questions? You, you said did. You had other questions. Okay. Yeah, you did. Oh, well, do you want to do sources? I do. Yep. Okay. Yep, I do. Okay, long list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sources for this episode included, I did cite the U.S. code book to make sure that I remembered the prongs for deprivation of rights. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read two things on the FBI website. One was just called Mississippi Burning. Mm-hmm. And that actually, if you ever want to look at, there's thousands of pages of original FBI documents that have been scanned in. Wow. To, to um, the internet, I guess. Yeah. They're, they're redacted, but they're, they're there. So that the link is at the bottom of this Mississippi Burning FBI, like famous cases page. Yeah. So like to see the people that they interviewed i'm sure a lot of the names have been redacted just because they weren't involved but just super interesting stuff Mm -hmm. uh there was a second fbi article called a bite out of history 50 years since mississippi burning Mm. university of virginia miller center had an article called mississippi burning by kent germany and david carter there was a whole thing on the pbs american experience called murder in mississippi on the it was the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Law Famous Trials website. I think they run famoustrials.com, but I wasn't 100% sure if it was a separate website, so I cited the whole thing. But it's called the Mississippi Burning Trial and Account. On CBS News, an article called Case Files and Photos from 1964 Mississippi Burning Murders of Civil Rights Workers Made Public for the First Time by the Associated Press. I think that was dated like 2019. Like they were kept private, confidential for a very long time. Wow. Um, In Mississippi Today, there was an article called On This Day, June 21st, 1964, by Jerry Mitchell. Mm. Uh, On the Zinn Education Project, uh, there was a page called This Day in History, June 21st, 1964, Three Civil Rights Workers Murdered in Mississippi. The U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division had like a press conference that was just like online it was just called michael schwerner dash james cheney dash andrew goodman but it included all of their case files that you can link to and i I read through some of that it was like court documents and stuff very heavily redacted yeah yeah that stuff that you can read it's it's pretty interesting wow um on history.com there was an article called this day in history august 4th slain civil rights workers found uh, on Civil Rights Digital Library, it's called My Burn or Mississippi Burning, mm-hmm. and that is where they also pulled everything they could get under the Freedom of Information Act mm. and posted it online. So it's also a bunch of like court filings, federal documents, all that stuff, and yeah. it's a collection of all of that. Um, so that's really cool. On the Gospel Coalition, an article was called Nine Things You Should Know About the Mississippi Burning Murders by Joe Carter mm. in Teen Vogue. The article was called The Mississippi Burning Murders Changed Civil Rights History by Alexa Stevens. That's crazy to me that that's in Teen Vogue. I love it. Yeah. I love to see yeah. it. But, but it's it's not the Teen Vogue we knew. No. I will tell you that much. <laughs> I can't rip out pages of this one, I'm sure, and put perfume on my wrist like I used to. 
<laughs> Let's add so you actually might still be able to. Okay, well, fair enough. Anyways. <laughs> on the Real Crime channel on YouTube, the video is called KKK Mob Kills Three Civil Rights Workers. Mm. And on the FBI files, that video was called The True Story of Mississippi Burning. And then the Criminology podcast had an episode called Mississippi Burning. Mm. And then for a lot of the bullshit trial stuff where we were just like dismissed and reindicted and dismissed and all that stuff that came from wikipedia because i was just like everyone sucks <laughs> yeah no yeah definitely um and that is our coverage of the story of the murders of michael Schwerner, james cheney and andrew goodman collectively known as the mississippi burning case my burn or the murders of three civil rights workers in neshoba county mississippi wow thank you for this sissy um wow i wow this one it's rough yeah but it's it's important it is it it's kind of all of this has happened in the last 60 years yeah. 61 62 years yeah um so it's really not that long ago which is horrible i mean all of this was in mom and dad's lifetime i was that's everything that I've been thinking of since last week to now yeah. has been how old were mom and dad when this took place? Yep. So sorry to call it your age as mom and dad, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, wow. Wonderfully researched and told Sissy, but everyone, thank you so much. If you stuck with us, congratulations. You get the gold star. And my chair just broke, I think. So oh, on no. that note, uh, <laughs> on that note, I think um, I think that's it. Do you have any final final things to say, sis? Or I don't think so. Okay. This if, like I I knew most of the story, but I didn't know all the details. I knew none of this. It's, wow, this is stuff like why didn't we learn about this in history class? Right. Why did we spend so much time watching the first twenty minutes of Saving we, Private Ryan? Yes. Like why did we watch that instead of learning about this? Right. Hmm. Well, thank you everyone for sticking with us. We love you. Take care of yourselves and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at a most wanted pod where we do post true crime trivia every Sunday. You can follow us on X or formerly known as Twitter at a most wanted pod. Find us and like us on Facebook at a most wanted podcast. You can send us an email at a most wanted podcast at gmail.com. Visit our website at a most wanted podcast.com. And remember, listen, subscribe and love. Bye.